from Local 12 Sports. It's the Skinny Podcast. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome to the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly post re edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Roaring. As always, it's presented by Blake, the attorney Mason. We'll talk a lot of college basketball. The Reds pitchers and catchers have reported. Full squad workout is uh, around the corner. Actually, first spring training game a week from uh, Saturday. Uh, we got uh, maybe a little Bengals to talk about, not a whole lot, but uh, we do have a lot of college basketball to get to, Rick, as we wind through the conference season here in, uh, in, in February. You are actually on the road. Uh, after last night's, we're doing this on a Thursday morning, big win for NKU over Green Bay. They got a couple of days before they play Milwaukee. So you got a couple of days, got a couple of days without having to get up in the middle of the night and feed a baby. That's probably the biggest part for you. I, I wasn't going to advertise that in case my wife tuned into this, but yeah, I'm, I'm not too disappointed about that. It's kind of a nice break from the dog and the baby at times, but uh, I will say, you know, everyone's getting excited back home about pitchers and catchers reporting. And I have to say being in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and watching college basketball, kind of hard to get into pitchers and catchers in spring training mode for me. Yeah, it fe- I don't know. It feels like it gets earlier and earlier, does it not? Like the first spring training game used to start maybe the last day of February. Um, now we're like a week before that. The regular season starts a week before it used to. It feels like everything gets pushed up. Yeah, it, it comes quicker and quicker every year, and I'm never ready for it because I'm always in college basketball mode this time of year. But we'll, we'll address that later in the show. We'll also talk about it a lot more as we get closer to the start of Major League Baseball season. But Skinny, first of all, college basketball. The big news this week happened on Wednesday when Ohio State fired Chris Holtman as the head coach, and the rumor mill right away started swirling. Obviously, Ohio State isn't one of the teams we typically talk about on here, but Two of the local coaches have been swept up in those rumors with Sean Miller and Wes Miller both being speculated about as potential candidates for that Ohio State job. So let's start right there. What are your thoughts on Ohio State's basketball coaching search that is about to get underway here? I, I, I'm not here to try to, 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 to throw dirt on somebody, but how is Wes Miller a candidate? For, what has he done at a high level that would warrant him being the next head coach at Ohio State? And I say that because I got I got an odd, odds thing yesterday, Rick. I, I know when, when you were in this business, and maybe you still do, we get stuff from Bet Online AG that I like. I turn them into news stories. I find them interesting. And, and um, again, if you can localize them, that's the better part of it. But yesterday, somebody from BetOhio.com sent me yeah, a list. What, what is BetOhio.com, first of all? There's nothing. So I've never heard of that. Did you get this, or did you just see somebody put it out there too? I saw that on Twitter. Yeah. All right. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read off the the, the candidates with their odds. The favorite, according to Bet Ohio, and again, this is just their opinion. They're trying to land people to bet on this thing. But they West don't even. Miller they're not four, even a sports book, though. What like what are they getting out of this? I don't get it. Great question. Wes Miller at four and a half to one. Sean Miller at seven to one. Dusty May, the head coach at Florida Atlantic, at ten to one. Lamont Paris, who's going to be a hot name for a lot of jobs, uh, the current South Carolina head coach. I would warn people, though, again, let's get a little more body of work before we jump in with both feet there. But again, he is going to be a hot name for sure. 12 to 1. Anthony Grant at 12 to 1. Pat Kelsey, who's the Charleston head coach, uh, local product. He is 15 to 1. Will Wade, the wild card from McNeese State. He's at 15 to 1 as well. And then the field is two and a half to 1. So technically, the field is actually the favorite to land that job. But again, I, I go back to this. We'll get into the Sean Miller part in a second, but how would Wes Miller be a favorite for that job? Well, first of all, let me say, I do not think those are real odds of any Agreed. sort looking at that. I think that was just made up for entertainment sure. purposes to get people talking about something. And I mean, the fact that the you know other or unnamed was the leading uh, candidate here kind of tells you all you need to know about where we're at in this process. Your point about Wes Miller, not only has he not achieved a whole lot? But I think the bigger point there is if you're a Cincinnati fan, I wouldn't be worried about losing Wes Miller for either reason because he had a ton of success or because he did poorly. They can't get UC can't fire him because his buyout's too big. And most schools aren't going to pay $10 million, which is what the current buyout would be if he were to leave Cincinnati. So we talked about it a lot when John Cunningham announced that contract extension right after he had lost to NKU and Xavier in short succession there last season, that it was kind of weird to announce it at that time and give him a big extension with a big buyout. But the good news is if you're a UC fan and you want to keep Wes Miller, he's not going anywhere because of that, in my opinion. I just can't see it happening. I know I know these schools pay a lot of money for football coach buyouts, but I mean, Ohio State just paid upwards of $15 million to get rid of Chris Holtman in addition to all the money they're spending on football right now. The idea that they're also going to pay a big buyout to get a coach who, no offense, is not probably one of the top names that you'd be seeking in this year's coaching 
carousel and Wes Miller. I, I just don't see that being a, a reasonable possibility. I, I don't either. Again, I hope, again, I, I truly mean it. I hope Wes Miller has success at Cincinnati. I hope he's the guy that for Cincinnati fans leads them back to the tournament on a consistent basis, has success, all those things. But he hasn't done that yet. I know it's a small sample size, but it, you know, <laughs> when I, I literally, I'm like, when I saw that yesterday, it came across, I didn't even put anything up about it. I just laughed out loud. I went, what, what are we doing? Are you just, are you trying to patronize to my marketplace with this? Is this what this is about my man? Whoever sent this to me? That's what it felt like. Yeah. I think it was very much that, I mean, it came from Ohio bet.com or whatever you said it was, which which none of us have ever heard of before yesterday when they sent this out and the two leading candidates were two Ohio coaches. So, I mean, it, kind of tells you where they were headed with that, I think. But that being said, the whole Wes Miller thing, I don't think is real. The Sean Miller thing is a little bit different. And and it wasn't just Bet Ohio that put those odds out that got Correct. Sean Miller going. National writers did Jeff too. They Goodman and Rob yeah. Doster and even Shirley Donovan, if you're really in the college basketball weeds, a, a burner account on Twitter who Rick Pitino had a great quote about this guy earlier in the year, said he must be in our meetings because he's saying things minutes after I say I'm in a meeting or before I've even said them or something along those lines. So uh, truly Donovan has been harping on this for over a month now that Sean Miller will be interested in some of the bigger jobs that open up, not just Ohio state, but Ohio state was certainly one of the ones that he had mentioned. So this has been circling a little bit about Sean Miller for a few weeks now. And um, part of the thing with Sean Miller, we just mentioned Wes Miller's big buyout that he has. I've been told Sean Miller's buyout is much smaller. And so that's part of what makes Sean Miller more attractive candidates to some of these schools is not only has he proven some things, whether it be his first in at Xavier or the success he had at Arizona before things went south there. Um, but even last year, he got Xavier back to Sweet right. 16 and, and kind of right. showed that he's still a, a top coach in the, in America. So he's going to be attractive from that standpoint, but also the standpoint that he's he's gettable. You know, if, if you can afford that buyout and, and you feel like you can get him away from Xavier, if you're a, you're a top program like that, then then you're going to go after Sean Miller. So I think there are some legs to that. At the same time, talking to people around Xavier yesterday, I would tell you like the top brass at Xavier are not in panic mode right now. They don't believe that Sean Miller is leaving. At the same time, there have definitely been conversations that we need to give Sean Miller more resources and we need to try to up his NIL budget to get it to be competitive with the top teams in the Big East so that he's not going to be looking to leave every offseason. Yeah, so that was going to be my question for you of of, of how um, tenuous is that and, and how viable is that that they can they can up that NIL because if you're him and you're looking at this team as it is right now and this year was just a wonky year as we know because of a couple of different things but if, if they you know they can say they're going to up the NIL the question is can you how do you and if he feels like they can't do it enough to really compete in the upper echelon of the Big East. Does that become the deciding factor for him to say, I'm not going to, you know, I know you guys are thinking we can do this. I know they have that at Ohio State. Yeah, it's interesting, Skinny, because obviously the NIL and the actual resources for your program are coming from two separate places, right? right? The Like what you're spending on your programs, travel and your facilities and all that stuff is coming from the university. That is a budget line item right. at Ohio State or at Xavier. NIL stuff is coming from outside donations, collectives that are fundraising for this. And so um, it gets a little bit of gray area there because the schools are talking to these collectives and they are kind of like, I, I won't say dictating, but they are asking for help with certain things and telling them what they need for certain things. And so there is a little bit of crossover there. And a lot of times you're asking the same donors to donate to the the school's causes as well as the NIL causes. And and so there's some donor fatigue there, I think, and schools are, are certainly worried about that. And at Xavier, I mean, they're at a crossroads with the entire university. They're trying to uh, build this new medical school and uh, do these other things to increase enrollment and really grow Xavier University, not just from the basketball and athletic standpoint, but across the board. And so I think there are some concerns about like, what message does it send to keep giving more NIL dollars to to college basketball players and, and the basketball program when we're trying to raise money for important other things and we're in a, a budget crisis and all that. So there's just a lot going on at Xavier, I think in general, and that all adds up to what we're talking about with the basketball thing here. And I think to your question about, can they get the, the NIL um, number up to where it's com- competitive with the top of the Big East. There's no doubt that they can do that. I think there has been a little bit of a, a hesitancy from the Xavier side of things, the athletic department to 
okay all of those things and approve those those budgets because of what I just mentioned. There are other factors going into it, and they may be worried about sending the wrong message. So it's very complicated in terms of the NIL piece and the overall resources that are being dedicated to the basketball program right now. And I think not all of this adds up to me because like we're talking about NIL being the main reason he might want to leave, right? Well, Xavier's two big misses in the transfer portal last year that were contributed to NIL were to Gonzaga and Memphis. Xavier hasn't beat out Gonzaga and Memphis in very many recruiting battles in the history of the program. So I'm not sure if last year was like a clear sign that Xavier can no longer compete because of the NIL budget. But can um, Ohio State, if you're Sean Miller, can Ohio State? Of course. I mean, NIL right. uh, NIL, and uh, Xavier's NIL currently is in a better spot than Ohio State's is with Chris Holtman. But with the right coach, Ohio right. State's fan base and donors and alumni, they can write that coach basically a blank check in NIL. He can get as much as he needs for the right coach if they believe in him and they trust him. Uh, and in terms of resources, oh, I know there was a report by The Athletic yesterday that Xavier outspent Ohio State by $4 million. If you believe that, I've got a nice oceanfront property in Cincinnati that you'd be really interested in. That's just creative accounting. That's just a bookkeeper pushing numbers in a different way. Those numbers that you see reported like that mean absolutely nothing. There is zero chance that Xavier outspent Ohio State in basketball spending last year. That's just not the case. So um, I, there's a lot of misinformation out there when it comes to these coaching searches types of things. When people are starting to compare this job versus this job and why it's a better situation, a lot of the stuff that fans hear or believe is just completely false. And, and some of it's even reported by respected sources like The Athletic. It's just people who don't know what they're talking about, quite honestly. All right, let me throw this rock down the road at you, if you will. Let's say Sean Miller does take Ohio State. What does Xavier do at that point? Because a certain coach last week said he's interested in coaching again. I don't think that's crazy. I, I think Chris Mack is a real option. And in fact, I was talking to a lot of people yesterday, but a few important donors and two of them mentioned that exact thing to me without it even being brought up. I didn't say it. I didn't say, who do you think they'd go after? They just said, Hey, if it happens this off season, wouldn't be the worst time because Chris Mack's still available. We'd go get him in a heartbeat. So I'm not saying that's how everybody at Xavier feels, sure, but sure. at least two people I talked to yesterday that are influential and will have a say in this were absolutely thinking down that track. So uh, I think everyone is on the mindset of let's keep Sean Miller. Let's do everything we can to keep Sean Miller. That is the priority. But if something were to happen, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Chris Mack's name is, is brought into the mix. One other point to Chris Mack I'll ask you about, and again, we're th I'm throwing this rock nine miles down the road. I, I, I fully understand that. Anthony Grant's having pretty good success at Dayton. Um, had a chance the year of COVID to who knows what that team would have done. They would have gone in as a number one seed for sure. So he's done some really good things. Um, didn't have great success at Alabama. He kind of cycled through the mid-major to the major, back to the mid-major. You know, maybe another bite of the apple for him. Would, would, would Chris be a, not only a candidate at Dayton, do you think he'd consider that? At Dayton? Yeah. Uh First of all, I don't know that Anthony Grant's leaving. I just haven't heard that from anyone. It seems like his no, name. I'm, I'm, I'm probably with you again. He's on, I've, seen, I've seen him not just on the Bet Ohio list, but he was on a couple of other lists I looked at. So, yeah, I mean, it probably should with all the success he's had, but it seems like maybe there are some personal things there, personal reasons why people believe he he may not be interested in leaving. But if that were to happen, it would seem like Dayton is a a pretty good spot if you're a basketball coach that wants to step right in and have success right away and know you'll have support and resources to work with build your resume back up the question is can chris mack you know swallow the whole xavier dayton rivalry and the way things i know there was a, a point where they returned there and uh the fans were saying things to his wife and and all that so i i just don't know if that can all be repaired and if he can <laughs> deal with that but I, I've I've seen people, and we know the animosity from Kentucky, Louisville. Obviously, you know Rick Pitino going to Louisville. I've even seen on message boards Kentucky fans saying, "Bring him back, bring him back," and and you know how 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 much they hated him for doing what he did at Louisville. So it's you know, hey, it's one of those things where you can say that, but when push comes to shove, and if you believe that dude's a good coach, yeah, we'll take you. Oh, uh, the Dayton people, I think, would take Chris Mack in a heartbeat if they needed a coach. The question is, is that the opportunity Chris wants? An A10 yeah. job and being you know back at Dayton where there's just so much familiarity and in the past presumably hatred be between the two parties but I mean like you said this is these are adults making adult decisions for millions of dollars I don't know right. that that's going to be enough to, to hold him back from taking that job that's an interesting question I hadn't really thought about that one well let's move on here skitty to s some of the actual teams I think that's that 
fully covers the the coaching search. But NKU, we'll start with them because all the other local teams lost games recently. Rick, I, Rick, I, I, you know what? I'm, I do mean to bring up one more point on that. I'm so sorry. Okay, I, I, that's on that's on me. What, what do you think of the timing of this? The Ohio fact State. that it's happening before the season's over, you mean? Yeah. And with a month left? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the part of this that seems new. Um, I don't recall a lot of high major coaches losing the job with a month of the season left. And then there being, we get, it feels like we're in full fledged coaching carousel mode right now. Right all now. Of a sudden. Yeah. And yeah. we still have a lot. I mean, I know there was the weird situation last year with Georgetown and Ed Cooley. And I don't think that was handled very well. Personally, it seemed like that really tanked the end of Providence's season. And that news got out there. Ed Cooley had his house on the market before, you know, the, everyone knew about it before the season was over and everything. So that news got out there pretty quickly and it became a, a real disaster for Providence. I don't, I don't know how much of a benefit this is to the coach for, to the programs that are making the firing ahead of time. I mean, I guess in theory, you're able to vet all your candidates earlier and you get your first pick when the season does end for all the other teams. But if you're trying to get the best coach, most of those guys are going to be playing in the NCAA tournament. Correct. You're waiting yeah. a month and then more time. It just seems like, a long time to go through this entire process. Now, maybe it does give you more freedom to to vet candidates and talk to them ahead of time and all that. But I, I just don't, I don't like it. That's for sure. It seems like it's going to be a bit of a problem for a lot of programs. Yeah. I understand the DePaul one, I guess. I mean, that, that would almost seem like that was writing on the wall, no matter what, but this one, again, why state's not three and 20 something. They're still above 500. They suck in the big 10. But I think you let the guy fight it out. Maybe that's what they're afraid of is he fights it out, somehow squeaks into the tournament with a great run at the end, and they still don't want him. I mean, it, it just it felt it just seemed weird. I also wonder, Skinny, with the NIL situation being so important and more and more donors feeling like they have a bigger say because it's like, well, you, you need a half a million from me to get this NIL thing done. I'm going to have a say in what's going on then. Guess what? The patience and, and the, the fan climate right now across the board, doesn't matter what school you're at. It's just Ooh. every every game is our coach sucks, fire him, the, the program's over with, or we're winning a national championship. And yes. I mean, there's no in-between for any fan base at all in America anymore. There's no nuance. Yeah. There's no storylines. It's just every game, live or die. Everything sucks or everything's great. And so I think that's going all the way up to like the donor level. You, you're not good in two years. You're gone now. You don't get four years to figure this thing out anymore. Not with the transfer portal and all the money I'm pouring into NIL. Yeah. All right, let's get into some of these games, though, because uh, we've got a lot of them, and it wasn't good for the local teams, aside from the NKU Norse. They beat Oakland, who was tied for first. Then they beat Detroit, as Marquez works at the school's all-time scoring record on Saturday. By the way, congrats to Detroit. Congrats to Detroit for winning. They did get their first win on Valentine's Day on Wednesday, and that was at the same time that the Norse took down Green Bay at Green Bay. Green Bay was alone in first place in the Horizon League when NKU beat them on Wednesday night. So the Norse are now tied with Wright State for fourth place in the conference. Obviously top four in the Horizon League, get a first round bye in the conference tournament and get the home game in the quarterfinals. So that you, you want to be in the top four. That's a big part of it. NKU is uh, down the stretch skinny. I think they have a lighter schedule too than Wright State, Milwaukee, or Cleveland State, which are the team's either tied with them in right, right them, case yeah. or right below them that they're kind of fighting out for that top four spot. So I would say right now things are looking pretty good for NKU as we head down the stretch. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of the Green Bay game, I mean, how, how many games do you think that you would have you would have thought this team wins with Marquez Warwick scoring seven points? Now, you got the game winner. It was a great play to get the game winner. And that's still a clutch play. But but still, to win on the road against the first-place team in the league with the, your go-to guy, your main guy, your scoring threat getting seven, I would have never believed that. Skinny. He and Trey Robinson, who I would, you know, you can argue some other guys have really stepped up here, but coming into the year, those were certainly two of your more experienced players, along with Sam Vincent and two of your top players. And even still now, those are two of your top players, without a doubt. They combined to go six for 27 in this game. On and the Sam road, Vincent isn't playing. On yeah, the road against the top team of the conference, and they found a way to gut out a win. And that's the thing that I go back to with this NKU team is they've been trying to score more this year and they've shown in games that get up tempo that they can outscore teams when they're playing at that pace. But they've also have this matchup zone defense that they've been really good with. And they've won for the last three years, grinding games out in the fifties or low sixties playing that way. So that's not unfamiliar to them when a team like green Bay tries to slow it down. I see other teams in this conference that they want to play one way. They have their style and they have to do that. NKU seems like they can play a lot of different styles and they're not the most consistent team, but when they're at their best, it seems like they can win almost any way. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they win the Oakland game. I know it went to overtime. That's why the score is a little inflated, but it wasn't completely inflated because of overtime. That was a high-scoring game. Detroit's Detroit. They are what they are. I mean, we just mentioned they just won their first game of the season, and last night you win a game in the 50s. And let's face it, in March, I think you do have to find ways. Sometimes those games are going to get in the other team makes a bunch of shots. You better match it. You know, game gets grinded out. You better get stops. And and I do think that I will say this, Rick, after watching the, 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 the debacle that was the last, whatever, 11 or 10 minutes against Wright State, I kind of felt this team was almost dead in the water and to bounce back the way they have. And I know Detroit was part of the three game winning streak, but to bounce back the way they have that, that's a, that's a great sign at this time of year. Uh, yeah. That, I, I couldn't agree more skin. You had that stretch where they lost three in a row. And two of the games, I don't think they played very well. Uh, definitely not at Youngstown State. And then the the game against Wright State that you're talking about, it definitely didn't go their way down the stretch of that one. And so there were concerns without a doubt, but see them bounce back, win three straight. And again, it's always with this program, like starting in June when they're there for workouts, it's like we have to be our best for three days in March. It's all they talk about. And I think that does work. I, I think there's something to that. They've clearly had success doing it the last few years since the staff has been here. Yeah, how much do you think for Darren Horn that helps him avoid highs and lows? And maybe he's a guy that always avoids them anyway. But but again, even as coaches, we ride the highs and lows, right? Of you, especially when you're on the high, you're trying not to let your team get too emotionally like, hey, we're really good. We're, we're just going to roll out and go. And vice versa, when you're losing, you don't want to get so tight that you can't find a way to bounce back. How much do you think that he embraces that? Does that help? I think it's twofold. One, it it helps the players with that exact thing. No loss is too big of a deal. I mean, if you go back to his first year, they lost by 30 to UIC around this time of year. And then they finished off the season well and won the conference tournament that year. This year, obviously, they had that embarrassing loss at Youngstown State. And right away, they've turned it right back around and they've they've started playing good basketball again. So it seems like, to your point, they, they don't let those lows become a huge thing that, that tanks their season. And the other thing that I think it helps him with personally is he doesn't seem too worried about uh, grinding out every possession and every possession having to matter. It feels like a lot of other coaches maybe won't try a guy early in the year or or maybe even the middle of the year uh, because, well, we, we're in a tight game. This game matters, and we don't want to give away six possessions here if he screws up. Darren Horn doesn't do that. If you're not playing well, he'll bench you. You might not get in for an entire game. If you haven't played in two weeks, he might start you the next game because you had a good week of practice, and he's not worried about we have to win every single game during the regular season when we're playing in a one-bid conference. And I think that works. And, and case in point this year, look at Randall Pettis, the freshman right. guard. Earlier right. in the season, he couldn't get off the bench. Jeremiah Israel was ahead of him, and it looked like he might not play at all this year. And now he's had eight straight games where he's made a three-pointer. He's had, you know, he's been in double figures in six of the last eight games, and he's making key plays down the stretch in just about every win that they've had, including leave him on the floor for the last possession on defense so we can help you there. And I mean, when you're telling me they have enough trust to leave him out there in the final possessions of games compared to where he was back in December, it's incredible how far that's come. But that only happens if you have the confidence to put him in game situations throughout the course of the season. Exactly. Uh, the last question here, and this got brought up to me. Of course, it's going to when you have one all-time school, the school's all-time leading scorer surpass the former all-time leading scorer. And the great thing about Marquez Warwick and Drew McDonald, Skinny, is they've played in a similar era. They're not the same type of players, but typically when you have an all-time leading scorer get surpassed, one guy played 30 or 40 years ago, and the new guy plays in a new era, and it's like, well, you can't really compare their games. It's a new conference that you're in or what have you. But in this case, they both played in the Horizon League. They they both played in the last 10 years of basketball. I mean, Drew McDonald just set his record six years ago. Uh, who do you got, Marquez Work or Drew McDonald, as the best all-time player in NKU history? <sighs> My, my goodness. I'm going Brady Jackson from back in the 1980s, actually, is the best player in NKU. Uh, okay, that's fair. I've heard some other people say that, too. So who do you got between Drew or, or Quez as the best overall? Yeah, player? that's a fair point. In the, let's call it the Division One era, right? We'll, we'll go, yeah, we'll go Division One era, best player. I'm going to go Drew because I think he was a little more efficient offensively. Um, I thought that, I, you know, he obviously had to be a big part of what they did on the glass they weren't an overly big team, and he played the five, although it was an untraditional five because he played a lot out on the floor and could make the three. I, I, I'm going to go with Drew. Yeah, I mean, it's really tough because they are such different players, Drew being a, a big man and Quez being a guard. But the one thing about Drew is it felt like he elevated everybody around him because of his IQ and his passing ability. He was yeah, so he was, he was the perfect 
I'm sorry, he was the perfect trail five. I mean, the perfect. If you said, I'm going to drop a trail five and play, he's going to look like he plays in the YMCA and can't do much else, he's the guy. But to your point, he could knock down a three in trail. He could quickly get you in your offense in trail. Um, he, he, that's why, to me, he just does a little bit more. And I don't, again, I don't want that to be a, a smirch on, on, on Marquez at all because I, I think he's a terrific player too, just to, yeah. to your point in a much different way. Yeah, it, they, they are so different. And Marquez has been so good. I mean, if you want to talk about showing up and, and seeing special moments and incredible game winners and stuff like that, Marquez has had the the more impressive career in that regard. I mean, there's been a lot more times where you, you show up, you watch what he does, or you watch him win a game like he did last night, and you just shake your head like, this dude's unbelievable in those moments. Um, but I, I get your point about Drew, too, because in some ways it felt like he did more overall. Um, but again, they played in the same era too. It feels like NKU is kind of at a different spot because they right. were so new to division one when Drew was here and it didn't feel like the overall athleticism and talent around him were as good, but they were in the horizon league and they were doing the same things that this team is doing. So it is pretty much an apples to apples comparison. It's, it's a great debate. I'd, I'd be interested in hearing where anyone else stands on it. Cause I, I don't have a great answer there. Old timers will get you some Brady Jackson though. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, they will, and I respect that. I didn't watch Brady Jackson, obviously, so it's tough for me to weigh in on that conversation, but I know he was great as well. But it, it, for me, it's tough to go Division Two versus Division One and have a, Fair point. a real Fair point. comparison there. All right, number 22, Kentucky. They've dropped another five spots in the poll. Uh, lost to Gonzaga 89-85 and then beat Ole Miss 75-63 this week. They play at number 13, Auburn, on Saturday at 6 p.m. Uh, skinny, I guess... The good news with the the win over Ole Miss is they got it done with defense, finally. Onyenso tied the Rupp Arena record for blocked shots with 10. They held Ole Miss to 63 points, well under a point per possession. I think they were about .8 in that game. So that's something that UK hasn't done much this season. At the same time, with what they've shown us with those three straight losses at Rupp Arena and uh, the way they've struggled in, in big games recently, Tennessee and Gonzaga most specifically, I've lost a lot of faith in this team in terms of them being a serious contender in March Madness. I am too, except the other caveat you can get is, is Tuesday was what was the first time all year they played at full strength. Now then they also lost Trey Mitchell to a shoulder injury. So we don't know where that's going to go. Um, I do think they missed DJ Wagner in, in, in ways, especially on the defensive end more than I thought that they would. And I'm not making excuses. I mean, the, the Gonzaga, the, the, the Gonzaga game to me was squarely on John Calipari in many ways. I mean, good Lord, how many times can you just let, let a guy catch a ball in the post, turn and score without doing something different? And that lob play at the end of the game is truly is, – I, I watched it in real time uh, with a couple coaches. Um, we were getting ready to coach again. I, 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 I literally said, would you have drawn that up? And, and he looked at me, he goes, no. And this was somebody who coached in college too. I go, that's the dumbest damn play I've ever seen in my lifetime in that key spot. And especially the way Reed Shepard was playing the second half, that loss is squarely on Cal. And boy, I'll tell you what, if they had not come back to beat Ole Miss, fan base was quickly ready to turn. They, they've been closing in on that. You lose another one in Rupp, I can't imagine what the rest of this season would have been like. I, I know, and that's that's the thing for UK. We've talked about it that this the rest of this regular season feels rather unimportant because it's all going to be about what they do. Other than March. getting seeds, yeah. Other than uh, getting unless seed, they tank though. Right. I mean, if they if if they would have really tanked this thing, then it would have gotten incredibly ugly down the stretch here. Uh, the Ole Miss win feels like it stabilized them a little bit, but Skinny, I just I don't have any confidence in this team in big games anymore. If, if they're playing well, a a good team where it feels like a big game, like I mean, even th this weekend at Auburn, I don't have any confidence that Kentucky is going to win that. That would be a huge win for them. But going into it, I, I've lost any confidence that they can win games like that. These these next four games, Rick. They could go 0-4. I don't think they do, but they certainly could. At Auburn, at LSU, and LSU isn't good, but Kentucky hasn't exactly proven to be stalwart on the road to this point. Their, their, their I guess, big road win in the SEC was the two-pointer at Florida, but they also scuffled at Arkansas to win, and Arkansas is dreadful. Then they're home to Alabama, and then they're at Mississippi State. I mean, you go 0-4 at that point, you're still going to be a tournament team because then they've got Mississippi State at home and Arkansas at home after that, and then they finish at Van or I think right. So they got Arkansas, then Vandy, and they finish at Tennessee. So at the very worst, they're getting to 19 wins. I mean, at the very worst. And I don't think it's going to be – it'll be 2021, and I still think there'll be a six or seven seed. But, uh, again, this thing still has a chance to go south. Yeah, it does. And you mentioned the thing about the starters not being back. I know or the starters finally being back for the yeah. first time the other night. I know Cal's made a big deal about that, but 
you had Trey Mitchell miss a few games. You had DJ Wagner miss a few games. I'm so, I, I know Trey Mitchell isn't a nice player. I just don't know that those two guys are, are making enough of a difference for this team. I, think, that was, I think they make, I think they do on the defensive end. I think that's where they miss some of that, to be honest with you. And, and they're, they're two end players like Fierro's a one end player to me. Um, Onyenso is is probably a one-end player, but he's kind of an elite one-end player where you need him to be elite at that one end. Um, so I do think they help. But to to your point, again, kind of like you asked me about uh, going to the Gonzaga game after they beat Vandy, do you think they're back? And I said, no. I, we both said they need to prove it against Gonzaga at home, and they didn't. So n- now show me something going to Auburn. Show me something against Alabama, which is one of the best offensive teams in the country. Show me something at Mississippi State. Even show me something at LSU, for goodness sakes. Show me that, and I'll believe it. But until then, I, I'm again, the Ole Miss game didn't move the needle much for me, other than, again, I get you finally got your guys back, and a couple of them, to me, do matter. I think Trey Mitchell does matter. I think D.J. Wagner does matter. But, again, do they matter enough to win elite games? Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't think those guys make a big enough difference to fix all your issues, but I do wonder if just the amount of guys being in and out and not having the same group and being cohesive enough has hurt this defense over the long haul this year. And Because to me, that's what Cal's always been best at. He's never been like some great tactician on the offensive end that runs a bunch of great set plays or anything in end of game situations like everyone's complaining about now. It's always been that he has found a way to get these one and done highly talented freshmen to come in and defend together at a high level in a short amount of time, which is very hard to do. I think that is a very difficult thing to do as a head coach. And that's been his specialty in the past. It hasn't worked with this group. I know some people have talked about it kind of being a mentality for some of these younger guys that maybe they just don't get it. But I do wonder if maybe, to Cal's point about the lineup, having the starters finally back, if it's more about that, of just the cohesiveness and constantly having a different group out there from game to game just wears on you and your communication. And I honestly believe cohesiveness means more on the defensive end than it does the offensive end. I would agree with that. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you, you learn to trust where a teammate's going to be and how they're going to react in a help position and things like that. And you, you kind of, you, that's chemistry, right? Yeah, that's what we talk about when we say you build chemistry. You kind of understand and trust your teammates. And if you've got a new one back behind you every time, it, it probably is a little bit more difficult to figure that all out. Yeah, I don't I don't have to help on a cutter because Onyenso's at the rim. I can stay on my guy who's a 42% three-point shooter. I don't have to give up the quick kick out three. I mean, those are things I think you only learn by playing with each other. And to that point, they just haven't done that. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Cincinnati, who lost to number three, Houston, 67-62, and then lost on Tuesday at home to number 10, Iowa State, 68-59. The Bearcats will play at UCF on Saturday at 4 p.m. Skinny, explain to me why UC is still starting two big men. It's a great question. Um, I I honestly don't know the answer to that. I I, I don't know if there's a great explanation for that. you know, I know people want to see Day Day and, and and Jizzle together. I will say they also combined for 11 turnovers against the Iowa State team that doesn't exactly put a ton of pressure on you. I mean, so some of that, uh, I, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I, to, to me, and maybe part of that too is to the point of why are you doing that? Maybe if you stop doing that and maybe just start your five, I get always trying to have a score come off the bench. I really do. I think that's important. I don't want five scorers on the floor to start a game and have nobody be able to come off the bench. Cause when I start to go to a rotation, suddenly you don't, you're down to two scores on the floor. I'd rather mix it up a little bit, but I'd also like to start damn close to my best five. And Dan Skillings has to be in that best five group to me at all times. John Newman's in that best five, pick your point guard. I mean, if it's chisel at this point, great. It's chisel at this point. Um, you know, you, and again, the bigs, unfortunately, right now, Victor Locken is done. He's toast. I, I for whatever, whatever he tried to be, whether it was a stretch for in the non-con, whatever it is, it's just it's it's done. Fans have turned on him. He has no confidence. Wes is losing confidence quickly in him. And then we've talked about the bigs. If you could park Fandango on one end of the floor and Jamil Reynolds on the other end of the floor, you'd have a hell of a player. Yeah, but problem is uh playing them together doesn't work and no. playing only one of them at a time you're still not getting much production i mean uc and xavier feel very similar all of a sudden where neither one is just is getting anything out of their front court and they're, they're relying so heavily on the backcourt every game but my thing with victor lock and skinnies i feel bad for the kid at this point he's getting crushed by the fan base so much so that west went out the other night and said we stand by victor lock period or whatever and it's like well great, but why don't you help the kid out by changing it up for him? You put him in the starting lineup at the forward position 
where he's clearly not comfortable. He's clearly not equipped to play at the he's Big 12 level. He's going to get introduced as a starter, and what's going to happen when that happens? Ooh, I mean, I mean, yeah, help the kid out a little bit, change up the scenery, bring him off the bench, play him at the center spot a little bit more. I mean, you end up subbing him out and then ultimately going small a lot of times anyway, which I understand is it, that's what I'm asking for here. But why, why not just make that change when it's clearly not working for you at the beginning of games? A lot of times you're finding yourself behind the eight ball over the first five to 10 minutes of action. Um, I guess the good news, Skinny, is they have UCF coming up this weekend. They need a win. And that first game against UCF, they did win by 11 points. My only concern about that, though, is that was one of those Dan Skillings games where he went off and scored 21 points and played really well. And you're not getting that every night from Dan Skillings. So it's like, can you, is UCF a good matchup for you if Dan Skillings doesn't go off offensively? I guess we'll find out. Yeah, and and it's on the road, and I do know they have a win at BYU, and I do know they have a win at Texas Tech, but it's still, you're not getting a lot of those on the road in this league. And, um, you know, to me, and just the way this team's playing at the moment, it just, we, we talked about the cumulative effect of those close losses. It felt like the Houston game carried over a bit to Iowa State. Maybe they felt the pressure of, we got to have this one because you start doing the math on this. I mean, to what we talked about last week, I think you're down now to having to go five and two down the stretch of the regular season. And that, that's, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be tough to not go better than two and five down the stretch of this season based on what the schedule is. I mean, I only count two automatic wins in Oklahoma State and, and West Virginia at home and, you know, maybe Kansas State at home. But other than that, most everything else is damn near close to impossible to win. Uh, I, again, the math of it's very hard. And the problem is I I don't know what the answers are. C.J. Frederick is not an answer. He's just a guy. And and that's where I, I just don't know what the answers are for them. And I, I think they're still searching for answers. Yeah, I think there's still a path for UC to get an at-large bid, but it's almost gone. I mean, they're basically where Xavier was before this last loss to Seton Hall. It's They're out of wiggle room. They, Like you said, they can lose maybe another game or two, but that's over the course of the final seven, and that seems like that's going to be a tough path for, for them to get through. Uh, let's move on to Xavier, which lost at home to Creighton 78-71 over the weekend and then was embarrassed at Seton Hall 88-70 to on Wednesday night. Xavier doesn't play again until next Wednesday when they host Providence, which is much needed. They they need some time off and to, to think about what's going on here. Um, I, I think this just goes back to what we've been saying all year, Skinny. If Quincy Oliveri, Desmond Claude, and Davion McKnight don't play well, this team isn't winning many games, at least not against quality competition. Uh, to, to your point, Rick, I mean, again, the, the first stretch of the game, much like the UConn game where they couldn't get an easy basket and it just snowballed. And at that point, then you're just playing catch up and, you're not catching up against UConn or Seton Hall on the road. Not, not to the extent that they had to play catch up. It was ugly. It was really ugly. And um, I mean, it felt like a game in which these guys just, they didn't show up. I mean, you, you hate to say that. I hate the whole, like you weren't ready to play thing, but you come out and it looked kind of like an open gym setting. They're making careless turnovers. The defense was soft. They're missing shots where it's kind of like, uh, that's not a bad shot, but it's kind of like a haphazard shot. It didn't look like you or your whole heart was into it when you're taking it. There just wasn't a lot of conviction with anything they were doing. And everyone's going to bring up the fact that the Sean Miller rumors started on Wednesday afternoon before that game. And I get it. Like, I mean, the way that they played in that game, you can say, look, this Xavier team's plenty bad enough that they can perform like that on their own without any need for outside distractions or anything. But when the outside distraction does happen on that same day, and then you play a totally uninspired first half like you did at Seton Hall in a do-or-die game for your season. I mean, the season's now pretty much over in terms of getting an at-large bid. Yeah. If you if you win that one, it's still the hope's alive a little bit. Uh, I, what, what other conclusion are people going to come to other than there might have been an outside distraction involved there with the Sean Miller rumors? Yeah, it might have been slight, but I mean, again, the UConn, there was no distraction in the UConn game. And listen, I know UConn's on a different planet. We both agree with that. Uh, but at the same oh, yeah, time, nice. I mean, those are two different things. Seton Hall, they match they, up much better against. They do match up much better, and they beat them at home. But but again, I, I you know like Seton 20. Hall needs Seton Hall needs to get some wins too. And so I think you also faced a team that was desperate to get a a big a big home win for themselves as well. Um, yeah, I, I, did it cost them a little? Maybe a little, but I think it's it goes back to the whole issue that's going on all year of you just get nothing from your front core on a consistent basis. Hell, you get less than nothing a lot of times, and and that that's the big difference. Yeah, the, the final month of the season looks like it's going to be pretty difficult for Xavier fans here because it does feel like the at-large chances are pretty much gone now. And you've got this whole coaching rumor thing that's going to continue, I would imagine, because the only way it really stops is if 
Sean Miller comes out and says something publicly that he's not taking it. And even then, do you really believe that? Because, I mean, he turned down Arizona I, 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 remember Xavier, I, mean, I remember a Xavier coach who once said that. <laughs> I remember multiple who did that, right? Yes. Um, and then, like, what what are you even rooting for as a Xavier fan down the stretch? Do you Do you want to see some signs of improvement from the young big men so that you have something to build on next year? Or, or are you rooting like, no, we want them to be as bad as possible so the coaching staff feels like they need to 100% revamp the entire front court, which I, I'm sure they do anyways, but like... Correct. As a Xavier fan, I don't even know what you're rooting for here down the stretch. It, it really feels like things kind of fell apart after this game. Yeah, that's the disappointing part is it, they kind of worked themselves back into, okay, start doing the math. If they can do this, this, and this, um, you know, they don't have to do anything totally special. Just make sure you take care of this business with Creighton. Um, maybe go steal one on the road in a Butler or, or a Seton Hall. Well, now you lost to Creighton or lost to Creighton and lost on the road to Seton Hall. You still got Marquette two more times uh, to, to play. The math is almost damn near impossible unless you did something spectacularly special like sweep Marquette. Yeah, I mean, I think it's literally you go undefeated. I mean, you went out yeah. down the stretch now. I, I just especially because this loss was so embarrassing. There's now some optics things involved. I right. mean, maybe five and one gets it done, but I, I don't even see that at this point, quite honestly. So, uh, all right. Let's move on to the Super Bowl, Skinny. We'll recap the Super Bowl. I know it's kind of old at this point, but we'll we'll still give our thoughts here since we talked so much about it. The Chiefs beat the 49ers 25-22 in overtime. It was an incredibly boring first half. It got exciting right at the end there, Skinny. Was the the payoff worth the wait, in your opinion? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I would say yes. Um, the first half certainly felt like it dragged um, without question. But once the two teams got to rolling, it was punch, counter, punch, punch, counter, punch. Obviously, the storyline of, of did Kyle Shanahan handle the overtime correctly, which I think has been completely overblown, in my opinion. Um, we'll get to that, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and again, give the Chiefs this. Like I said, I picked against them all during the playoffs, but until, until the King gets beaten, um, they're still the King. And it's funny, I, I thought about this the other day. You know, Really, the only quarterback who's had playoff success against Patrick Mahomes has been Joe Burrow. And think about this in 2021, Patrick Mahomes had one Super Bowl ring. Joe Burrow was playing for his first Super Bowl ring. Obviously, Joe Burrow and the Bengals don't get it. Since then, Patrick now has added two more to the collection to go up three to nothing. How quickly has that come that's really made Patrick Holmes kind of separate completely from the pack, the current pack? Six straight AFC championship game appearances since he became their starting quarterback. Four Super Bowl appearances now, and you've won three of them. I mean, I know we just had Tom Brady and quite honestly, the goat conversations and the dynasty conversations I find to be rather boring and annoying, but with Patrick Mahomes and what we're seeing right now, skinny, this is pretty incredible. I mean, it is a worthwhile storyline. We're not talking about a guy who's, who's just scratching the surface of it. We're talking about a guy who's accomplished a whole hell of a lot and still in theory has a lot of career to go. It feels like he's at the height of his powers. Um, I I guess, I have a few other things I want to get sure. from you from the game, but I, I do wonder, can the Bengals learn anything from this Chiefs Super Bowl run? Because this one felt like the hardest for them. This one felt like the most improbable for them. And I think most specifically, I look at their team and I think they might have the worst receiver room in all of football. And yet with Pat Mahomes, they, they win a championship. Do, do you take anything from that as a Bengals fan? So to that question, because I want to tie it into T. Higgins for a second, which obviously starting next Tuesday, the 20th, is the first day that players can be franchise tagged. The deadline to do that is March 5th. So they don't have to do it that day, and they probably won't do it that day, although I would say the earlier they do it, if they're going to do it, the better in case they're trying to tag and trade. It gives you more time to get trade offers before free agency. So I want to get that out there. It was not going to be a separate topic for us. But, you know, the, the Chiefs, I think the thing you learn from them is – You better have interior pass rush. Hello, Chris Jones. You better have good players in the secondary, which they drafted extraordinarily well last year to get that. And they have Legereus Sneed, who's an elite corner. Um, You need to have an elite receiver in some capacity. They have that in in Travis Kelsey. The Bengals have that in Jamar Chase. Again, different receivers, but elite, elite at their positions. And then if you have an elite quarterback, which I think we're all in agreement Joe Burrow is, he should be able to make the other receivers better. And I think Kansas City traded Tyreek Hill. They ain't missed a beat. Now, they're not as explosive. They're not as dynamic. He ain't slinging it 60 yards down the field to a streaking Tyreek Hill. But they lost Tyreek Hill, and they won two Super Bowls without him. To my to that point, again, I think they franchise tag T. I'm not going to be mad if they franchise tag T. But it shows you, would that $20.5 million be spent better spent elsewhere? 
like trying to make a run for a Chris Jones. Now, I think Kansas City is going to try to run him back if they can, but I think it shows you there's your formulas for success. Um, and they've hit on some draft picks. The Bengals, the last couple of drafts haven't. The 21 draft, the only guys you got out of that were Chase and, and, and Evan McPherson. You missed on Jackson Carmen. You missed on Deontay Smith. Who, again, I think anything fourth round and up should be close to a hit. doesn't have to be a home run, but those guys have to be somewhat contributors, in my opinion, and neither one of those are even close. They played you know, a handful of snaps on, on offense this season. You know, the Dax Hill pick, I don't, I didn't crap on it. I'm, I'm not trying to relitigate this, but he was a slot corner in college. You tried to make a safety. That was a disaster. Now his future may be next year. We've talked about this. He's in for Mike Hilton as a slot corner. But the bottom line is when you're paying for the quarterback, you're paying for at least one elite receiver. You're paying elite money for a left tackle in Orlando Brown. You're paying your defensive line. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm doing these position my position looks each day, Rick. Um, and I'm doing it where guys are under contract, you know, um, who are free agents, what uh, the Bengals will likely do, what they should do. When I started typing out the salaries for the defensive line, and I knew what they were in my head, and, but until you see it on paper, you're like, Jesus, God, they're paying a crap ton of money on the defensive front for these guys. Um, you know, you're, when you start doing that, you better hit on the other position groups, pick-wise, who are under rookie contracts, and they haven't quite done that. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I have a few things from the game here. You mentioned the overtime situation. So basically, the 49ers win the toss. They elect to take the ball to start overtime, play with it first. The overtime rules have changed. Now both teams are going to get a chance to possess the ball. So everyone's losing their minds at Shanahan saying he should have wanted the ball second because then you know if you need the touchdown or the field goal, which completely changes your play calling, right? If you've got a third down situation like third and medium, you now know. If you need a touchdown, that's two down territory. So your play calling is completely different. There's the advantage there. I assume that's basically what everyone's mad about. Maybe there's more to it that I'm I'm not realizing. Did you have a big issue with him choosing to take the ball first? I, I didn't because you know what your defense is allowed to do? They're allowed to make a stop after you kick that field goal. I mean, by the rules, you're allowed for your 11 guys to stop their 11 guys. And I his mean, defense is also gassed at the end right. of regulation. Right. So this also bought them the time to catch their breath a little bit. Um, you know, would it have been nice if you're if you're Kyle Shannon going out and score the touchdown? Sure, but you got points on the board. And like I said, your 11 are again, I think it's in the rules. I, I may have to go back to the rule book and see, but I think your 11 are allowed to stop their 11. I think there's a no, that's, that's that they changed that in 2022. You're allowed to do they, that. My bad. Yeah, is it yeah. like an addendum to like rule 21 FC3? I believe. Yeah, they, they added okay. that with the new overtime rules at the same time right. as the same year, correct? Yeah, and, and I know a lot's being made of his comments of listen, I was thinking in terms of the third possession of matching them. Um, I think that was probably stupid to say because, again, you kick the field goal to match them. They would have had to kick the field goal. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't understand that part of it. But I understand – I don't mind the logic of taking it first. I don't. And, again, to the point of the defense being gassed, all right, I feel good about my offense. We're going to roll down and get some points on the board here. And then they have to go. The pressure's on them. And they handle yeah. the pressure. Good for Can- – how about we do this? How about we tip our cap to Kansas City and go – Dude's elite. And yeah, I know he knew what he needed and they converted a fourth down and all those things. Dude's just elite. Also, you don't typically coach from the standpoint of like, what if we screw up? Right. You, know, no, you, don't, you don't take the idea of like, hey, we're not going to score a touchdown here. So what should we do then? It's like, no, let's let, this is our plan of attack and we are going to score a touchdown and we're going to put the pressure on that. Like whatever reason they had for doing it, I'm sure it wasn't because we might not score a touchdown here. Right. The idea was we are going to go down and score a touchdown and, and we have that confidence in our guys. I, I don't have a big issue with it. I'm not saying it was right or wrong. You can make the argument the other way. Certainly. I know fans get into all that stuff. They all play Madden and they're very good at manipulating overtime rules and everything like that. I think the maybe the bigger part of this was the 49ers players who admitted publicly that they didn't know the overtime rules. Right. I think that seemed to light more of a fire under this, but I'm like, that was really pretty irrelevant to what was going on. If we're being correct, honest. I don't think that changed anything. Once you kick the field goal and your players think you won, and and you don't, nobody's charged, you tell your guys, okay, we have to go make a stop. Okay, they understand at that point. Yeah, we have to now go make a stop. Right? We're on the yeah, field. I, yeah, I, I just, I, I, I'm with you. I thought that was overblown too. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that happened was the Travis Kelsey incident on the sideline with Andy Reid screaming in his face, kind of bumping into him aggressively because he wasn't in a red zone p- play where they ended up fumbling the ball away. Um, a huge deal made out of this. Credit to the broadcast, by the way. They had this nail. They had great video of it. They talked about it right away. They also had the 
Dre Greenlaw injury right away where he oh uh, blew his Achilles. I mean, credit to, I thought the broadcast was all over. Tony Romo was incredibly annoying down the stretch because he wouldn't yes, shut he up. Was. But early in the broadcast, in terms of like having the elements and having the storylines, they were freaking on top of it. It was pretty good. But what did you think about the Travis Kelsey situation with Andy Reid? So I thought our guy Moegger hit this one on the head. I don't know if you heard him this week talking about this on, on ESPN 1530. Um, when, when, when you win, Things like that are forgotten because it points to he's just a competitor. You know, he's got caught up in the moment. And he, he alluded to Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, you know, hey, yeah, yeah, he punched teammates, but he was he just hated to lose. And and he exuded. And, then, and when they won, you go, oh, OK, if they'd have lost that, I think it would have been a bigger deal. And I think probably rightfully so a bigger deal. Um, I know after the game, they did the kumbaya. We love each other. It's heat of the moment. I mean, let's not forget Kelsey had that crazy incident with the Raider in the Raider game earlier this year, back uh, on Christmas Day, where he slammed his helmet down on the side. I mean, at, at some point, dude, I get your competitiveness, but chill out a little bit. But the bottom line is, you get a pass when you win. You get a pass for those circumstances when you win, whether that's right or not. I I don't think that this is going to be a big deal or anything. And I, I didn't find it to be a big deal when it happened. I agree with Mo. It's going to be forgotten. It's going to be looked at as competitiveness. Uh, but I did find it interesting how many NFL players immediately responded on social media. It was like, what? That's crazy. That's, that's beyond the pale. That's like stepping over the line, all of that stuff. Like immediately there were a lot of players who called him out on it. And I normally when something like that happens in the heat of the game, it's like, you know, uh, Tom Izzo can act like he's going to punch one of his players in the face and almost every former athlete immediately jumps in and is like, you fans don't get it. You never played the game. This is just how the interactions go in the heat of the battle type of thing. But with this one, it was immediately like, that's crossing a line. That That's too much. You, you can't do that to your head coach. I found that to be interesting. So it's like, if all the professional athletes aren't even going to have his back in this situation when they almost always defend that type of behavior, it kind of says something to me about that. That did seem to be a little bit egregious. And listen, while I don't have Taylor Swift fatigue, I completely have Travis Kelsey fatigue. I mean, his whole Viva Las Vegas nonsense and fight for your right to party. I don't even find that clever. He, he's not. He's a bad WWE wrestling promo yes. at all times. Yes. And the part yes. of the thing is he's an idiot. Like he basically flunked out of UC and his brother got him back on the team. They kicked him off multiple. The guy was an idiot while he was at UC. We all knew that. Everybody knew it behind the scenes in local media. And now he's become a big star because he's really talented. And he dates. Taylor Swift, which is great. And they're all going to parade him around like they're so proud of him at UC. But like they also all knew he was an idiot while he was there and he was not, not a great guy either. So uh, none of this stuff is surprising. The, the, the one that is surprising to me, Skinny, is everyone seems to be wanting to hate, especially in Cincinnati, wants to hate the Chiefs. And with that, they want to hate Patrick Mahomes. I find him incredibly hard to hate. I do too. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I told you, I think I said this. I don't know if I said this on the podcast or I told it to people privately and I'm not doing anything out of the ordinary saying this, but after the Bengals lost to the chiefs, um, I kind of followed Zach Taylor out of the, the uh, locker room when I got done with the locker room to go out and do a, a stand up for TV on the field. And you just, you had to walk down the thing. I didn't say anything to him. I, I'm not bothering. He's in his own world. Patrick Mahomes is sitting on a cart at the end of the tunnel. We're walking down. And Zach, I thought classly walked up and said, Hey, good luck to you guys in the playoffs. Um, you know, I, I, I admire your work with something on those lines. And Patrick said, hey, tell Joe, get better. I look forward to playing against him again soon. And I thought that was kind of cool. And it's one of those ones where he, he, nobody was watching them do that. Nobody was watching Patrick have that response. It was just a nice human response. And I, I, I think to that point, I like watching him play. I like the way he plays. Um, you know, he's a winner. All those things. And I get it. They, they've become a nice rival. But I think you tip your cap to him and go, there's the standard. That, that's the standard that we have to get past. And when we do, maybe we make a run. How do you hate a guy with that voice? Like you can't take that seriously as a villain when he talks like he does. That's a good point. Give me your Patrick Mahomes impression. I know you've got a good. I, one. I can't do it. No, I can't do it. I, I wish I could. I, I don't have that voice in me. I have Cookie Monster in me. I, I, I can't do Pat's voice. Yeah, it's it's tough. I it's it'd weird. be a great impression I, if you could nail it because it, it is a very funny voice. I I'm trying to think of like something you say. What eighty? I mean, the guys, the guys, they were just, they, they just really had my back. It's kind of like a, by the way, I, I, I completely forgot to watch. Who did he thank first? Well, in his, so in his MVP statement, he didn't really thank anybody. If okay. any, if anything, he mentioned his teammates first, but down on the field, when they interviewed him right after the game, like the, on the field interview, which that didn't count for the bet. Um, he immediately like had a cross untucked and he said something about god so okay. people were right. people were t texting me and tweeting at me saying ah oh, pat mahomes big god guy 
the value was on God, but I don't think that would have counted for, for the bet. So um, one last question here, skinny, were there any favorite commercials you had from the game? Honestly, about the only two were the Duncan one. And then the, I guess with the YouTube one with the, uh, with the Seahawks and whatever, the flying thing, the flying, uh, th- those were honestly the honestly two, two most clever ones. Those were good. The Dunk Kings was my favorite with Affleck yeah. and, and Damon and, and Tom Brady, like Tom Brady kind of won the Super Bowl from a commercial he standpoint. Did. Cause he was in that one. And then the other one that I liked was the bet MGM. Tom has won enough already. Oh yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah, he's, you've already won enough. And they went through all the other weird celebrities and stuff like that. Um, the only other one that I thought was kind of funny was the Etsy one. I don't know if you saw with the, the statue of Liberty. I don't think I did. Where it was like going back to the time where, where like France gave us the statue of Liberty. And you know, it's like one of our forefathers looking out and I go, Oh crap. That's a pretty good gift. And then, so the idea is he gets on Etsy and buys them a charcuterie board and the yeah, French are like, yeah, cheese board. All right. Yeah. yeah I, thought, I didn't see that. One. That's it. That's pretty clever. Yeah. It was all right. Um, ask any, anything we mentioned pitchers and catchers. Wait, are how do we do our bets? Oh, I'll tell you next show. I didn't even think about it. I won. I, I didn't win overall, but I won the uh, game because I had the chiefs. Yeah, I think I had the under, and I think I had I, – I know I had San Francisco, so I think I I, I had the Chiefs in the over, so I won those I did, two. I think I did win the coin toss, right? It was head? You won the coin toss. I <laughs> lost I lost a over longest rush for, for Christian McCaffrey. Um, I lost Travis you, Kelsey you, touchdown. Yeah, so it sounds like you're, you're piling up losses here. Yeah. I, I don't hear a lot of wins on your end. You were over two in the game. And you're one, no, you're no, one, I was one, one. one. I had the under. It was under 47 and a half. Uh, okay, yeah, I guess you did hit the. I thought with further time it would have hit the over, but you're right. It, it was still 25 under, 22, so. yeah. All right. Well, you won overall, but I will have a final tally next week. I'm sorry. Right. I was traveling this week. I didn't, uh, didn't, add I'll this good. all good. Uh, what is so we mentioned pitchers and catchers reporting. So, what is your top storyline heading into Red Spring training? That was our first question, Skinny. I, I think how the rotation shakes out. Um, you know, it's funny. We're, I mentioned we, my boss and I kind of combined to do a we'll called a Reds primer, just a thumb sucker to put up of, you know, who's new on the team, who's lost, um, you know, who's who's probably locked up rotation spots, who's battling for rotation spots, bullpen. I mean, there's like five guys battling for one bullpen spot. There's three guys really battling for one backup outfield spot. I mean, this roster feels pretty set, but the rotation to me is the one. Because when I pushed him to shove and I, and I wrote it down, I even told my boss, I said, you can change this if you disagree with, the, with how I put these. I said, you know, it's you're usually good about this too. So the rotation spots I think are locked in are Hunter Green, um, uh, uh, Montas and Andrew Abbott. Lodolo's not been completely cleared yet, health wise. He's expected to be. Uh, neither is Graham Ashcraft. Those two would make the other two, in my opinion, but they're going to have to show they're healthy. Ashcraft coming back from the toe injury, toe surgery, and uh, Lodolo with the stress thing in his tibia. And then Brandon Williamson and Connor Phillips are probably the other two candidates. So to me, it's, it's how does that rotation shake out to me, I think, is the, is the biggest part. Because we mentioned this, you're going to have a couple of pretty good arms starting the year in Louisville. And that doesn't include the kid they drafted from Wake Forest last year that they think can be in the big leagues sooner rather than later. That doesn't include Chase Petty, who's, who was acquired in the Sonny Gray trade and is kind of fast-tracking through the system. So you've got a, a lot of... Of, of depth in, in the rotation. It's a matter of how does it shake out at the big league level? That to me is the biggest one. How about for you? I'll go with the same. I, I, w- I would say the pitching rotation as well. Um, that the Jonathan India storyline where he's going to slot in now that he's signed this two year extension is interesting because yeah. I don't see a natural spot for him right now as I, we enter I, and I, we're talking about maybe playing the outfield and other <clears> positions, <throat> but the outfield doesn't really seem realistic for him. I don't know. In fact, when I did a, I did a lineup, uh, a, a lineup that we, they would use most days against righties and one against lefties. And the only place I could slot him in was as a DH against lefties. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's like, before you even talk about Jamer Candelario, right? right? I mean, even then it, like before him, it's hard to find a spot now with him at the corners. It's really difficult to, to slot him into a lineup, uh, even on spot duty. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see how that all shakes down, but they seem to have a lot of trust in him. So they're going to keep, keep running him out there somehow. And I'll be honest with you, Jimmer Candelario is actually, if you look at his splits, his career OPS is better, not by much as like seven seventy four to seven seventy. It's better against left-handed pitching than it is against right-handed pitching. So if he's going to play, let's just say he plays first base against lefties. And then where are you going to put Christian Encarnacion strand? I think I DH him over Jonathan Indy to be quite frank. Yeah. Those are the two for me, the rotation in India, I would say. Uh, would Skinny be in favor of relegation in the MLB as it's implemented in the Premier League? 
if you if you had another league to go to, I mean, I, I don't would we would we relegate them to AAA and bring up a couple of AAA teams? That doesn't seem feasible. Doesn't like, work. You have to have yeah. another like major league that could be relegated to and and brought up, right? Yeah, I think people bring up relegation for every sport that doesn't have it. And they always say, like, wouldn't it be great if it had it? The only sport that I feel like actually would be great for is college sports. Because the yes. conference thing is such a natural fit to be like, you bump up a conference level, you drop down a conference well, level. That would be how, so great. How many D1 teams are there at the moment? Like 367, I think. Yeah, as I say, 363 was a number. But yeah, that's that. We're in the same page. So yeah. so how about you just split that down the middle and 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 you, you have Division One and Division One a like you used to have in football and teams get relegated each year from from one to the other. I don't hate that, but I even like the, the idea better of like, I'm an A-10 school right now, and I can jump to the Big East with an, an average record of this over the next two years or something like that. You know? And get the Big East money, and, get the Big East chunk of the pie as opposed to the A-10 chunk of the pie. And yes, DePaul's ass is back down in the A-10 playing yeah, fair enough. Charlotte, you know? I like yeah. that. Is Charlotte still in the A-10? I don't think they are. No, Charlotte's in the Sun Belt, maybe? Conference no, maybe the, or maybe the American. Oh yeah, they're in the American now. That's right. They're they're, they're, yeah, they're doing well. That's uh, yeah. that's their whole big storyline this year. Um, what is Skinny's opinion on why Dave Parker has not been indicted into the? It says indicted. They meant inducted. Inducted in the Hall of Fame when he has better numbers than most recent inductees. Is it punishment for Pirates drug scandal? I, I think it is, unfortunately, because I've written a column about that of of five Reds that five five players with Reds ties that that would be candidates for the Hall of Fame. Dave Parker, honestly was is a better player than Scott Rowland. And I, I'm not besmirching Scott Rowland. They played different positions. Um, but you can go back and look at his numbers. And Dave Parker has better numbers than a lot of Hall of Famers. He's got a, a, a MVP, if not two MVPs. Uh, he's got a World Series ring. Um, you know, just a great, great hitter. And it's disappointing that, that he is not in the Hall of Fame. I think he clearly deserves it. What is Skinny giving up for Lent? Um, I'm not Catholic, so I don't give up stuff for Lent usually. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, am not, I, I don't, I, I do, I do the fish fry stuff or, or a slice of pizza on Friday for whatever reason, but yeah, I'm not giving up. I don't give up anything for Lent. I really don't. How about you? Do you, I was raised Catholic, but I'm definitely yes, not I know. giving up anything and I'm eating ground beef every Friday. So there you go. Uh, yeah. What, what is, uh, uh, I'm sorry. We already asked that one. If there was one Mo Egger and then a second Mo Egger arrived, how do you refer to them in plural? Is it Mo Eggers, Mo's Egger, the Cajun style, M E A U X Egger, or the idiot email lady at work style, Mo Egger apostrophe S that that's the one to me. It would be the Mo Egger apostrophe S because there is that person of that's a singular, uh, that's a singular apostrophe you're using that or, you could just do this, Moses. It's plural. Moses. Moses. Moses Egger. Moses Egger. There's there's some Moses over there. <laughs> I could do that. All right, and we'll we'll finish up with uh, Mo's question here. Please rank right. the following careers from worst to best. I'll read off these names real quick, and then you have the yes. ranking for us correctly. Yes, I All do. Right. Tom Chambers, Henry Cotto, Cecil Espy. Yes. Marianne Mobley. Yep. Melvin Tootin. Yep. Jim Longborg. Tony Massenberg. Peter Tamarkin. Kent Oberkfell. And Actually, it's Ken Oberkfell. He, he put Kent on there, but it was Ken Oberkfell. Played for the okay. Cardinals and the Giants in the 80s. All right. So I know I, like three of these people. All right. Tell me the three that you know because I'm interested. I'm sure you know Tony Massenberg and Tony Tom Massenberg, Chambers. Tom Chambers and Henry Cotto, I know. And that's it. Okay. So here we go, ranking them from worst to first. Worst on the list is Paul Justin, was a Bengals and Indianapolis Colts backup quarterback, made 10 career NFL starts, and with the Bengals, he was 0-3. That's a good place to start at number 10, correct? That is a good place to start. Number nine is the other Bengal on this list, Melvin Tootin. Big Melvin Rootin Tootin was a third-round pick of the Bengals in 1995, made only nine starts for the Bengals, and actually, his claim to fame was he caught a touchdown pass in his rookie year on a tackle-eligible play, but he's number nine on the list. Number eight, the great, you stumbled on his word a little bit, the great Cecil Espy. Cecil had 304 career hits across his major league career, finished his career with the Reds in 1993, a 622 career OPS. Not good. And he's where we get the Espy award from. That's correct. Wrong. Next is the, one of the guys you know, Henry Cotto. 
I, I made notes about each one of these. I knew all these people. I just had to go look some stuff up just to, just to have some talking points. He was a decent fourth outfielder with the Cubs and Mariners, 569 career hits and a 669 OPS. He's at the bottom of the list, but not completely. He's not worse than Paul Justin. He's not worse than Melvin Tootin. He's not worse than Cecil Espy. He comes in at seven. Number six is Tony Massenburg, who somehow played 13 undistinguished NBA seasons, played a couple of other seasons in Spain, did have 4,000 career points and 2,900 career rebounds. So he comes in sixth on the list. Right below, Ken Obergfell. Ken Obergfell's major league career was a solid one with the Cardinals and Giants mostly, played a little bit with the Braves and Pirates. 1,354 career hits, a 713 career OPS. He uh, was the third baseman on the Cardinals' 1982 World Series championship team, was a starter on the 1989 uh, San Francisco Giants World Series team that lost the earthquake um, uh, Bay Bridge Series to the Oakland Athletics, um, and uh, had an okay career, so he comes in at number five. Number four is Peter Tamarkin. Can you guess what Peter Tamarkin might have been? Uh, a gun manufacturer. Not even close. He was a game show host who was the original host of the show Pressure Luck. You know the No Whammies show? Yeah, I do know. No Whammies, No Whammies. He was the original host for that. He was an actor who played a lot of cameo roles. In fact, I was watching an old rerun of Rockford Files on MeTV. It's not on there anymore, but it was on for a while. I love the Rockford Files with James Garner. And I looked, I go, damn, that doesn't look like Peter Tamarkin. And I looked it up at that point in time, like two or three years ago. Peter Tamarkin was in that show. He he tragically died in a small plane crash taking off from the Long Beach Airport um, uh, back in the mid-2000s. But he's number four on the list. Number three, Jim Lonborg, pitcher for the Boston Red Sox and Philadelphia Phillies, faced the Big Red Machine in the playoffs in 76 as a member of the Phillies. 157 career wins. Won a Cy Young in 1967 when he won 22 games and helped the Red Sox come from nowhere to win the American League pennant that season. He also competed in one All-Star game. Number two, a guy that you knew as well, Tom Chambers, four-time All-Star, 20,000 career points, just a little bit over. He is actually 50th in NBA history in scoring. That's a good solid number two on the list, right? That's very good. Yeah, I thought he was going to be number one personally. Nope. Number one is Mary Ann Mobley, and I'll just stop with this. She was an actress of in many shows and, and films, but Miss America 1959. 1959? That, trump, that trumps Tom Chambers on the list. Um, Miss America, Miss America trumps four-time All-Star Tom Chambers. Come on now, that, that's fair. I, I, I'm looking up pictures. She does look beautiful, but the pictures are in black and white. So that's correct. She's a little long in the tooth now. I'd say. Uh, I think she passed. I believe. Well, that would that would definitely make her long in the tooth. She was married to actor and, and pitch man, and you probably may remember him. I say his name, Gary Collins. Do you remember Gary Collins at all? I mean, in fairness. Up- Gary Collins is like the most there. I've known probably 12 Gary Collins since well, I've Google, been alive. Google Gary Collins. And as soon as you look at me, Oh, I remember seeing that guy. He pitched some products and did some game show stuff. And he was, he was around. Uh, yeah, you're right. That's exactly the reaction I had. Yeah. I think I've, I figured I've seen that guy. Yeah, I figured you saw that guy. He's so, got the fakest smile ever. Yeah, for sure. So you may disagree. You may want to flip Tom Chambers and Marianne Mobley, but for me, Miss America in any year, that, that's a pretty good run, man. Look, look, I was only saying that before I knew who Marianne Mobley was. I'm all in on the Mobley bus now. So there we go. Paul Justin at 10, Melvin Tootin at 9, Cecil SB8, Henry Cotto 7, Tony Massenburg 6, Ken Obergfell 5, Peter Tamarkin 4, Jim Lonborg 3, Tom Chambers 2, Marianne Mobley number 1. That was just a a beautiful segment of podcasting right there, and that's all I've got. That's all I've got. Appreciate it very much. We'll be back next week to talk some more college basketball. The Reds will have uh, already gotten their first workouts in, and we'll talk about their spring training opener, which is looming at that point, and much, much more. The Rick Roaring. I'm Richard Skinner. This has been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly pro pre-edition, presented by Blake, the attorney major.